Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Have you been naughty or nice? <laughs> Twas the night before Christmas. Hello, vile people. Hello. And Merry Christmas Eve, Eve. Merry Christmas Eve, Eve. If you celebrate Christmas and happy holidays to everybody else that celebrates all the beautiful holidays. Yeah. Well, we have a little bit of a surprise for you. So if you're surprised that we are releasing this the night before Christmas Eve, you're welcome. It's a couple mini murders all in one episode. Yeah. Christmas themed. Christmas themed. Christmas edition. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, I have two stories for you, and I am going to start off with one that is very, very gruesome. So just letting you nice. know, um, happy holidays. Here's your holiday murder. So for the first story, I'm actually going to take you to Chicago, Illinois in Ooh. 2013. Alexis Valdez was 18 years old, and he was living with his aunt and her boyfriend, Silvestri Diaz Hernandez. Okay. Now, there isn't a lot of background information on his family or even his previous home life. In fact, I honestly couldn't find his aunt's name anywhere. So that's how kind of tight-knit this murder is. Mm -hmm. I only know that he was just going to school and needed a place to stay. Okay. Now, Alexis and his aunt both had an agreement that he was allowed to move in as long as he cleaned up after himself, went to school, and went to work so he can help out with some bills. Yes. Now, it wasn't really an arrangement where he had, like, rent for the most part. It was just, hey, if you're going to live here, you're going to help out. This went on for a while until one day, Alexis, he just randomly stopped working. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that caused tension because that went on for a few weeks and he couldn't help with any of the bills. Okay. Well, because this broke his agreement with his aunt, she then asked him to move out and this infuriated Alexis. On Christmas Eve 2013, his aunt went to a party and Silvestri, her boyfriend, went to go visit some of his family. Now, Alexis decided not to do anything. He just wanted to stay home alone and just drink by himself. Okay. He eventually got so drunk that he started thinking about all of the bullshit that was going on and how it was just rude of his aunt to kick him out, knowing that he didn't have a place to stay or a job to really hold down. When Silvestri returned home, he found, of course, Alexis drank all of his beer. Oh. Now, this just kind of, it kind of connects you to the type of person Silvestri was. He was very kind, and instead of getting angry, he said, that's okay, bud, why don't we hop in the truck and go get some more beer? Okay, good man. Yeah. So, of course, they decided to go to the drugstore to buy more beer, and... Before they left, Alexis decided to hide a hammer by the front door Ooh. so he can reach it and attack Silvestri when they returned home. Oh, he's buying you beer. I know. That's I so know. messed up. I beer hate that. Beer that you drank. You it was drink. his beer. He's buying you more beer. So Alexis is just insanely ungrateful. Right. Now, when they did get home... This is when Alexis unleashed his rage. He smashed his head in multiple times oh. with the hammer until Silvestri fell to the floor. Oh. It gets worse. No. So trigger warning. I'm going to say this right now. Trigger yeah. 
Warning. Yeah. It gets gruesome. Ugh. He then covered up the windows and played very loud music Ugh. as he gouged out Silvestri's <gasps> eyeballs with his fingers, cut off his ears, nose, mouth, arm, hands, what? and his head Bro- with a knife and saw. Why? That escalated so rapidly. We are in five minutes in. I know. <laughs> That's Sorry, really guys. not okay. Trigger, like, trigger warning. That's a lot of rage. Oh, that is so sad that his aunt has to come know that, that will ha- that's what happened to her yeah. lover. That's so sad. Yeah. Now, he then put Silvestri's body parts on his aunt's pillow because oh. he wanted to leave her a present for Christmas. Oh, that is so fucking sad, dude. Yeah, to know that your boyfriend is murdered and you have the potential of walking into your own room, seeing his, like, body scattered throughout your bed i can't even imagine living your life and doing something like every day we're doing something on our own away from somebody that we care about and the fact that something like that could happen is like a reality that i just can't accept yeah it's traumatic yeah now he later told police that he would have killed his aunt too had she have come home and found her boyfriend's body yeah i bet he would so that was the plan originally now after he became tired of mutilating silvestri that's when he called 911 himself tired of i know and that was his words he grew tired from mutilating the body that's I really hate him. Now, when the operator asked him if he had tried performing CPR on the victim, this is when Alexis laughed and said the body had been decapitated. Oh, sick. He originally just called 911 to report a murder, and that's why they decided to say, have you tried CPR, any, you know, life remedies that could help? And he just made a mockery of it. Now, police went to the home that, of course, the three shared on Christmas Day. After Alexis called 911 to report the dead body, the police found Silvestri's body in the building's basement and discovered the knife at the scene. Now, of course, it was just the body since everything else was scattered on her pillow. Oh, hate that. Now, authorities didn't really provide any other details, including whether the decapitation has occurred before or after Silvestri was, you know, pronounced dead. But the medical examiner's office did say that Silvestri died of multiple blunt and sharp force injuries. Mm, I hate that. So it could have been either way. Yeah. When the police did arrive, they found Alexis covered in blood on the home's front porch. And they asked him what was going on. He responded, shouldn't you arrest me before you ask me questions? Because I just killed a man and he's in the basement. He's a douche. Yeah. Not to mention, after this encounter, he had, like, an iPad that he was holding, and he threw it on the ground and shattered the screen just in a fit of rage. So a child. A, a literal child. Like a big, big fat, baby back bitch. <laughs> <laughs> now, he was then arrested and charged with first-degree murder, where the judge ordered Alexis to be held without bail a few days later. Good. So fast forward to February of 2017. Alexis pled guilty to the charge and was sentenced to 33 years what? in prison. That's not a that's not enough. I yeah, it was it was definitely a crap. He's only going to be what like 50 when he gets out. That's bullshit, especially cuz premeditated AF. Uh-huh. And 
mutilating a corpse. Yeah. AF. Like, yeah. that is literally things that you should be locked up for the rest of your life for. I don't agree with the sentencing, and I think it was a plea deal because yeah. he pled guilty. So I <sighs> think it was along the lines of, if you plead guilty and we don't have to go to trial, save, you know, the state a lot of money, it saves us time, and you can just immediately start your sentence, and we'll give you 33 years as opposed to standing in front of a jury and having the potential of serving 25 to life. I hate that. Now, Silvestri's daughter, once the sentencing arrived, she sent an email to the Sun-Times, which is like a news report, you know, area, place thingy. I swear I'm literate and I've graduated (laughs) college, guys. (laughs) Now, Silvestri's daughter sent an email to the Sun-Times, which is like a news reporter. Yeah. Uh, But Silvestri's daughter stated this. My father was a good person. He never did anything to anyone. He was a good father. He did what he could for me and my brother. He did the best to provide for us after me and my brother lost our mother. Oh, dude. I know. And you can, again, just realize how kind he really was like he alexis drank all of his beer and instead of getting mad he got him more got him more and like it sounded like he was up to like drinking with him or like having a night with him like i don't know but he was definitely being welcoming and kind agreed well that was my first story it was a little it was a little baby it was a little one little baby it's just a little guy (laughs) but i do have a second story and this one's a little bit longer oh yay So it has a little bit more detail. I just really wanted to tell that gruesome story about Alexis and Silvestri because I thought it just, it needed to be told. It needed to be done. Now the second story, I'm going to call it the Hulliver House Triple Slaying. Whoa. A little play on words. A little crazy. A little crazy. (laughs) A little cray cray. Now I am also going to start this off on Christmas Eve. 2002 in Pennsylvania. Ooh, yeah. So Ernest Hulliver Jr. picked up his brother named Scott to go for a drive on Christmas Eve. Now, while his brother waited in the vehicle about a block away, this is when Ernest approached a house, cut the telephone lines, as well as other wires leading up to the house, and forcibly gained entry. That's a literal nightmare. (laughs) This is where he shot three women to death run back to the truck where his brother Scott was and yelled, drive, drive, drive. Uh, what? Is this interesting already? Why? First, first three seconds. First three I feel seconds, and I just don't understand why. Hook and bait. Hook <laughs> and bait. Hoover, which is Ernest, and his brother then drove to Clearfield County where Ernest discarded the pistol, a shotgun, and other potentially incriminating items in, like, a remote location off the side of the road. Now, as a background, in July of 2002, so just months before, Ernest was charged with multiple sexual offenses for alleged sexual conduct involving his two daughters, (gasps) Victoria and Elizabeth. What? Now, both of them were still minors at the time that oh. the charges were originally sought for. But now, Christmas Eve 2002, Victoria was 20 and Elizabeth is 14. Oh, my God. Ernest's wife, whose name was Jean, obtained an order under the Protection Form Abuse Act, which included stipulations that Ernest was evicted from the family home and he had no rights or privilege of entry and he was prohibited from possessing any firearms. Uh, he broke every rule. <laughs> <laughs> he then had to move in with his mother, father, 
younger brother, Scott, in Cambria County. Mm-hmm. So this is probably like an hour away from his family's home. Okay. Now the house that Ernest broke into was that of his wife and daughters. So rude. He shot Jean, Victoria, and Elizabeth to death with with his pistol. Now, what he didn't know was that he left Victoria's nine-month-old daughter, Madison, alive and alone Uh, in uh, the house. What? Yeah, unattended. So 28 hours later, that is when their bodies were discovered, including Madison, the nine-month-old daughter. Okay. Now, the bodies were discovered because Jean's family didn't see her and the girls on Christmas Eve, and that was, like, a family tradition. Yeah. So for the past 20 years, Jean and Ernest and their daughters, they would go to Jean's parents' house for dinner on Christmas Eve, and then they would stay over and open gifts on Christmas morning. Only this year was the first time in 20 years that Ernest was not allowed to go over, given his pending trial of the sexual abuse claims. Yeah, I mean, er er Ernest! Ernest! Come on, Ernie! Why? Now, when they didn't show up, of course, this made Jean's mother sick to her stomach, and she attempted to call Jean... But her calls were not answered, and they were not returned. Now, this is kind of where, when I was researching this, I was like, we got to get a better system. Yeah. Because Jean's mom was so worried, she contacted the police, and she inquired if there has been any, like, accidents on the hall, like, highway. She just was worried that maybe they got into an accident, but her second worry was that maybe her husband found her. Yeah. Now... She called the police to see if they could do a welfare check, and this is when the dispatcher told her to call back the next day if the family did not arrive. Okay, first and foremost, what? Yeah. But this is not any victim blaming, but I'm genuinely curious, like, why didn't she drive over there? So they lived kind of a little bit farther away, which is why they stayed the night Christmas Eve instead of, like, going and traveling on Christmas Day. Okay. My thoughts was that she probably was just delayed in, like, traffic. So she wanted to wait a little bit longer. But what I don't understand is that if somebody asks a, you know, police station to do a welfare check, by law, they have to do that. Oh, wow. Seriously? Yes. So that dispatcher literally could lose their job? Potentially, yeah. They should lose their job. Yeah, they have to do a a welfare check uh, within 24 hours of the call. Oh, my. And they didn't. Now, when Jean and the girls failed to arrive by Christmas morning, this is when Jean's mom, Mary, called the police station again and demanded a welfare check to be done at Jean's home right then and there. Good. At 7 a.m., this is when the Middleton police arrived, and one officer in particular, his name is Sergeant Givler, he was the one that was contacted by dispatch to conduct the welfare check at the home. When Officer Givler pulled up to the, their house was like a white Dutch colonial house. It was very beautiful. When he pulled up, he didn't originally think that there was anything suspicious, but he decided to knock on the door anyways. Now, he did knock on the door and rang the doorbell, but of course there was no answer. He couldn't really see much looking through the windows, 
And of course, given, you know, the welfare checks, they have to kind of take a peek around the house and make Mm -hmm. sure that everything's okay. Well, he went to the back of the home and noticed that the windows in the garage door was broken. He then grabs the garage door to see if it's still latched, but it lifts. Now, I do have an interview that Officer Givler gave to a TV production show just describing his time at the house for the welfare check, and I'm going to play that now. The minute that garage door went up, I, I could sense that something was not right. The family and car was there, and the door kind of fell open. Of course, then you get really, really scared because... The family's still missing. Uh, Nobody's heard or seen anything of them. Things just aren't right. So at that point, I I hollered in. I said, Middletown Police, is anybody here? As I'm moving down the hallway, there's an archway that's into the kitchen area on my right. So as I moved around, I saw a person laying on the floor and I could tell it was a female. And she was cold to the touch. And that was when I immediately called for backup. Now, when Officer Givler found the bodies, this immediately launched the investigation. Police then obtained a search warrant for their residence to gather more evidence on what happened to Jean and her daughters. Mm -hmm. After running the IDs, police found that there was the current sexual abuse trial scheduled involving Ernest and his daughters. They later executed warrants to search for him, his vehicle, and his parents' home where he was living. Good. Bust that fucking door down. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, 911? (laughs) Now, when Ernest was found, he was arrested and charged with three counts of first-degree murder with the intention to pursue the death penalty. Yes. Prior to trial, Scott Huliver, which was his brother, he pled guilty to third-degree murder and agreed to cooperate as a witness. Good. He led police to their family home in Clearfield County, and from there, that's when they retrieved all of the firearms and other evidence to support the charges. Because remember, he drove his brother to the dumping site, pretty mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, knowing that Ernest was already on trial for sexual abuse... Their prior sexual offense charges were consolidated with the murder cases. It should be. That's a direct correlation. Yes. So now he's not only facing the first-degree murder charges, he's also facing sexual assault and murder all in one case. Hell yeah. This gained a lot of public attention for the media, so Ernest's lawyer wanted to kind of secure a change of venue in light of, like, a pre-trial publicity. Yeah. And it was granted. The trial was set for January of 2003, so about a year later, and the prosecution presented Scott as a central witness. He testified that following Jean's decision to seek a divorce— Ernest stated that he would shoot her dead. He then described the brothers' nocturnal trip to their residence on Christmas Eve, indicating that Ernest had claimed that he wished only to retrieve his dog. But didn't he even come back with a dog, did he? Yeah, no. Okay, Scott, come on. (laughs) Now, this trip, of course, involved, like, 
further activities, and it was also corroborated by a surveillance video that the police obtained from a convenience store, which was, like, midway between Canberra County and Middleton. Okay. So Scott testified that upon arrival to Jane's house, he was told to stop the vehicle to let Ernest like access the rear seat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He then directed Scott to proceed to a location about a block away from Jean's home. He parked the vehicle and waited as Ernest proceeded towards the residence. He returned about five to ten minutes later and he was appearing like he was shaking. Oh yeah. This is when he instructed Scott to drive to the remote location in Clearfield County where he saw the shotgun in the rear of the vehicle and watched Ernest shuttle from his vehicle to the woods. Now, Ernest told Scott to repeat a false story Ugh. if he was ever asked about his whereabouts during that time period, you know, on Christmas Eve. Yeah. We know what you did, Ernest. Yeah, we do, Ernest. <laughs> during his trial, they allowed to offer testimony from several prisoner witnesses. So after Ernest was arrested... They had character witnesses who described various incriminating statements that was made by Ernest while he was in jail. They also testified about evidence that his efforts were to hire a West Virginia man to kill the father of Victoria's child, Francisco Ramos. And he wanted to kind of fabricate evidence suggesting that it was actually Francisco Uh, that killed Jean, Victoria, and Elizabeth and not him. Okay, but that's not going to work. Yeah. Ernest. So you're going to hire a hitman? That's just, you go to jail for just as long for shit like that. Yeah. You do for murdering somebody. Yeah, exactly. Now, another prisoner witness involved police at an early stage of these efforts and the undercover officers documented Every single time Ernest attempted to hire the hitman. I know. It's like, why? 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 Like, you're already locked up. Yeah. Why are you going to make your matters worse? Now, this conduct was acknowledged by the defense in closing arguments, where Ernest's trial counsel suggested that the attempt only reflected an effort by a distraught husband and father to avenge the killing of his family against the man that he believed was the actual perpetrator. So he's just fabricating a whole story just to get out of it. A web of lies. Yeah. Now, incidentally, the defense theory of the case recognized that Francisco was not the killer, but asserted that maybe another man who had been intimate with Victoria could have perpetrated the murders, but it was highly unlikely. Just stop defend- defending murderers. <laughs> like, just stop. Like, he did it. We should have a t-shirt made. Stop defending murderers. Yeah. Now, ballistic evidence was also pre- presented to connect the pistol found in Clearfield County to the killings and also presented evidence that the pistol was registered to Ernest uncle. So district attorney Fran Shardo says that he believes that Ernest killed his family because he wanted to eliminate the only eyewitnesses against him in that pending trial, which he was accused of molesting his daughters. Dude, you are the suspect one. Yep. You are not deflecting anything. The DA stated, we have the greatest of motives and compelling circumstantial evidence. Yeah, you do. Like, no shit. (laughs) 
shit. <laughs> now, since his daughters were no longer alive to testify against the molestation, he was ultimately acquitted for them. That sucks. However, since that happened, it was introduced in the preliminary hearing testimonies of El- Elizabeth and Victoria from the sexual assault case on the theory that they were killed to prevent their testimony. Yeah. This was agreed upon and added more charges to his original three first-degree murder charges. Oh, my God. Now we're going to get to the good part. In 2004, Ernest was convicted of first-degree murder for each of the victims. Yes. And convicted of the separate crimes of killing prosecution witnesses, conspiracy, reckless endangerment of Madison, the nine-month-old daughter, burglary... And criminal solicitation related to his attempt to have Madison's father, Francisco, killed. You ain't never getting out. (laughs) (laughs) The best part is that the jury had a a unanimous return of three death sentences for Ernest to serve. (gasps) Yeah, you ain't never getting out. (laughs) You ain't ever seen the light of day, sir. You ain't never seen the light of day. Now, since Scott pled guilty in order to assist the courts, he was only sentenced to 12 and a half to 25 years in prison. Scott's court-appointed attorney, his name is Justin McShane, he described Scott as a man who had been dominated and verbally abused by his brother and feels extreme remorse for the fate of his brother's wife and daughters. I don't know. You never know. I don't know, Scott, but you don't, I'll, I guess I'll yeah. take it. You don't know the background. I don't you know. know the background, no. In January of 2018, Ernest exhausted all of his appeals at the state level when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court handed down a decision affirming his death penalty convictions. Yes. Now, Ernest is currently on death row, but he was continuing to pursue his appeals through a federal court level since he exhausted all of his, his state appeals. Yeah. Now, in addition, there was a ban against all executions in Pennsylvania that Governor Tom Wolf declared in 2015, and that still remains in effect. Okay. Now, what that means is that executions are not being held, but they are being postponed to a later date, and death penalties are still being served and charged in the state of Pennsylvania. Okay. So no deaths have actually been... Um, sought after in 2015 like it hasn't happened Mm -hmm. but they're still serving the charges yeah 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 and yeah that's pretty much all i have for your little mini murders christmas edition yay it feels so festive happy murder (laughs) happy happy murder day happy mermis mermis mer me okay bye